three things. First, don't listen to this episode with kids around. It will be uncomfortable for everyone. Great episode for the headphones here or in a car alone. Second thing, sex is part of life. Sexual health is part of health. Mental health is part of health. It's all part of the same deal. This is an episode about sexual health and mental health and their connection. It is not a titillating episode. It's not a provocative episode. It's not dirty. It's informational. And if it makes your sexual health or mental health better, that is wonderful. Third thing, I don't want to deal with Salt and Peppa's lawyers. I don't even know who Salt and Peppa's lawyers are, but I'm sure they got some good ones and I don't need the hassle. Salt and Peppa, of course, a rap duo from the 80s and 90s. Maximum Fun, my network, doesn't need any hassle from Salt and Peppa's lawyers. I don't need any hassle from Maximum Fun's lawyers hassling me about them being hassled by Salt and Peppa's lawyers. I want to avoid hassle and lawyer hassle. And that's why I'm not going to play the Salt and Peppa song, Let's Talk About Sex, to open this episode. That song came out in 1990, by the way. That's 32 years ago. I am sorry. I'm also not going to play that song to start this episode because people have been playing Let's Talk About Sex for radio and TV segments since 1990, and that wouldn't be very original. And we're more of an acoustic guitar kind of show. Anyway, Rhett Miller was never in Salt and Peppa. He was neither Salt nor Peppa. But damn, that was a forward-thinking song now that I look it up again. Um, I'm going to quote from it here. I won't rap. Everyone will be happy about that. Let's tell it how it is and how it could be, how it was, and of course, how it should be. Those who think it's dirty have a choice. Pick up the needle, press pause, or turn the radio off. Will that stop us, Pep? I doubt it. All right, then. Come on, Spin. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Thank you. This concludes the reading. Spin refers to DJ Spinderella. Now, again, this isn't a retro hip-hop dance show. I couldn't support that. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Many months ago, there was conversation in our Facebook group, Preshies, about sex. Specifically, how mental health issues interfere with one's sexual health. How one's interesting mind, I don't like to say unhealthy, I like to say interesting, how one's interesting mind mucks it all up sometimes when it comes to sex. How depression, anxiety, traumatic stress get in the way of living the sexual life you want to live. You may have a partner. They want to get intimate. You want to want to get intimate, but here comes depression. Here comes old Clinny D and its pals to mess things up. People in that discussion group wanted to know, does anyone else get hung up on this? And the answer arrived, yes and what to do about it. People wanted to know what to do about this. What what should they do next? And the answer arrived, uh, no. I'm shrugging my shoulders right now as I try to make that sound. So today, a sex episode. A sex episode, if you will. Dr. Cindy Meston is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, director of the Female Sexual Psychophysiology Laboratory, and author of the book, Why Women Have Sex. I asked her, what does depression do to someone's body and mind that makes sex so elusive or even unattainable? There is a very high comorbidity of depression and sexual dysfunction, meaning the two go hand in hand. You know, you don't always know which came first, because certainly... If you've had sexual problems long enough that go unresolved, it leads to depression. And we know that depending on what study you read, between 50 and 70% of people who are depressed say they're experiencing sexual difficulty. So it's absolutely the case that depression and sexual dysfunction go together. And then to add to that, many of the antidepressants, which are very effective in alleviating the depression, also have negative sexual side effects. So you get a double whammy, right? You're absolutely right that it's affecting both the body and the mind. And so what 
a lot of people talk about most frequently is that it really diminishes their sex drive. And what is sex drive, right? It's the motivation to seek out and engage in sexual activity. And by definition, depression is a loss of interest in things you normally enjoy, like sex. And part of that can be explained, I think, through brain chemicals in that when you're depressed, there is a decrease in dopamine. This is one of the big neurotransmitters in the brain. And dopamine is very much linked up to reward. And so, like, um, well, what's your favorite dessert? What's your favorite dessert? Mine? Let's go with mint chip ice cream. Okay, so let's say you were really hungry and you were thinking about mint chip ice cream and I walked into your office with a big bowl of mint chip ice cream. Okay, dopamine would be firing because it's that anticipation of reward is when dopamine fires and it feels so good. And that's what motivates us to some extent to want to have sex. It's when you think of sex and then dopamine is firing and it propels you to move forward to engage in sex. One might call that horniness, correct? Well, yeah, exactly. You could call it horniness. (laughs) Uh, Desire, drive, but it's the wanting to to engage in sex, Right. right? The desire to get to that place. Exactly, exactly. And so when people are depressed, all of a sudden, you know, their dopamine levels are down. When they think about having sex, they're not getting that reward in the brain firing that propels you to go forward to, you know, meet me at the door and grab that bowl of mint chip ice cream. You know, instead you just stand, I'm not really hungry after all, you know. So from a brain chemistry point of view, that's happening. And then the other part of it is just, the lack of energy, the the amount of effort it might take. A lot of people when they're depressed don't feel good about themselves. They don't feel good about their body. And so all of these things just add up to too much effort. So they don't seek out sex. So right then you have a problem with even jumping in and starting to have sex. And then what we find is Depression also affects the other stages of sexual responding. Masters and Johnson described desire as the first, but in a linear sequence of events where desire precedes arousal, precedes orgasm, precedes resolution. So what what we find in the literature is that these other stages of sexual responding are also negatively impacted. You get many reports of problems with arousal, problems becoming aroused. And I should explain with arousal, there's two components. You have the genital component, which for men is blood flowing into the penis, so erection. And for women, it's blood flowing into the genitals, which is highly correlated with vaginal lubrication. And then the psychological component is feeling turned on. The experience of, I'm enjoying this, this feels good, I'm into it, basically. And so when someone's depressed, what happens with the arousal stage is they're very distracted. In order to maintain arousal, you have to be focused on the good physiological sensations. And people who are depressed are often thinking about other things. They're distracted or they're worried about what their body looks like. They're worried whether their partner is being pleasured. You know, so there, it's Masters and Johnson used to call this spectatoring, where you're kind of removed from the sexual situation. And then at a physiological level, when serotonin levels are down, which also happens in depression, it may be the case that the nervous system, which regulates arousal, is also negatively impacted. So you've got all these things happening. So if you don't have the motivation to engage in sex, and when you do... You have trouble becoming aroused, and then you're also going to have trouble having orgasm because you have to attain a high enough level of arousal to be able to achieve orgasm, right? So all of the stages of the sexual response can be negatively impacted. Well, it's just, then you, when you add to that, you know, antidepressants are very effective for alleviating depression, but then we also know that it's the most commonly reported side effect of antidepressants is sexual dysfunction. And it's the number one reason for non-compliance, why people 
stop taking antidepressants. So what do we do with this? You can alleviate the depression, so that's yeah. a really good thing, but then it's adding to the sexual side effects, right? So that's a really bad thing. So what do we do? That's the big question, right? What do we do? Well, I want to ask that question, but but what is it about the meds that are, are reducing sexual function? What What's in those pills? So it's long been believed that depression, at least of part of the explanation is a lack of serotonin in the brain. And so antidepressants increase serotonin. And what happens if you just give someone serotonin, it goes all over the brain. And as it turns out, we know that there are different receptors for serotonin. So in order for a molecule of serotonin to be read and used by your body, it has to hit a receptor. And then the receptor sticks onto it and it reads it and it uses it. Well, we now know, which we didn't know when the very first generation of antidepressants came out many, many years ago, that there are different serotonin receptor subtypes in the brain. And they're all labeled like serotonin 1, 1A, 1B, 1C, 2, 2A, 2B. So there's a long list of receptor subtypes and some of them facilitate sexual behavior, some of them impair sexual behavior, and some of them have no effect. And so what this means is the newer generations of antidepressants are much better in that they develop them so they don't just hit every serotonin receptor in the brain, they avoid the ones that have the deleterious consequences on sex. So they are, the newer generations are much better. And we know that in, in that they're increasing serotonin in the brain, but they're avoiding those receptors that dampen sexuality. Wow. But another thing that's also going on is when they hit those receptors, that what happens is they also suppress dopamine action. And so this also feeds into what I was saying earlier, how a depressed person is already depleted in dopamine. We see this in neuroimaging studies where they actually look at a picture of the brain at site areas of the brain that are rich in dopamine and should be lighting up and depressed people have much less action in the, those regions than do non-depressed people. So antidepressants, you're getting them, they're, they're impairing sexuality in that they are suppressing dopamine a lot of them and they're, some of them are hitting these receptors that, that impair sexual responding. Right, right. I wanted to ask you, if people are often so reluctant to talk about their mental health and people mm -hmm. are at least as reluctant to talk in an open and honest way about sexual health, how much of the barrier to improving someone's situation is just coming from that pair of stigmas? Like, like how much is that getting in someone's way? Right. Well, I mean, you bring up a really good question. I think there's a lot of people feel shame. You know, you already feel crap because you're depressed and then you feel shameful that you don't want to have a sex life or you don't want to have sex with your partner or that you feel like a failure because you can't become aroused and you're just frustrated. Especially we see this in men who have erectile problems because they're depressed, then they have problems becoming aroused. So then they have a, normally, you know, they're perfectly sexually functional. They had a long history of successful sexual interactions, but then they have, start to have some failure experiences where they lose their erection during sex. And it's because they're distracted by other thoughts that are filling their head, you know, during a depressed state. And so then the next time they approach a sexual situation, they have this fear because they, they're like, oh no, is this gonna happen again? Last time it was so embarrassing, I was so humiliated, I lost my erection, I couldn't perform, I let my partner down. And so it's a self-perpetuating negative cycle. We've been talking about depression and often a discussion, you know, on, on my show and the work that I do, a discussion about depression leads to anxiety or to the subject of anxiety, sometimes to anxiety itself, and and the other way around as well. Like I've called them the hollow notes of common mental illnesses. Like they're they're usually found together, and there's a whole host of 
things we talk about often on the show, like trauma disorders and, and OCD, things like that, is the idea of what's happening in a body uh, with depression fairly consistent with a lot of these other common mental health issues that people run across? Absolutely. I mean, you, you often see anxiety and depression going together as well. And, and often people will say, well, you know, I'm not really a depressive, I'm an anxious person, but when I'm anxious long enough, I become depressed. And so chronic anxiety, also it messes up your brain chemistry, it messes up your hormones, your endocrine system. So you're just pumping cortisol like adrenaline, you know, and after a while that just wears down the body and de depletes everything. So you do go into this depressive state. Yeah. Yeah. What is something in general about mental health and sexuality that you wish more people understood that the, you know, if you can get one idea across to everybody in the world about this topic, what, what would it be? Yeah, well, I, I think a big part of it is, you know, communication with your partner about sexual issues is super important in, in relationships. We just, in my lab, published a review paper of predictors of sexual satisfaction. And ultimately, that's what we care most about, right? It's not how often you're having sex. It's, it's the quality of sex and whether you're sexually satisfied. And one of the Biggest predictors of sexual satisfaction in a relationship is communication. And so in the context of depression, let's say one partner is depressed, being able to say to your partner, I'm depressed and that makes me feel like I don't want to have sex because I don't feel that motivation. I don't feel good about myself. Like opening up conversation so that maybe the type of sex will change within the couple. And we uh, we know that depression for most people waxes and wanes, right? It, it Sometimes it's predictable if there's a lot of stress going on or if there's a family loss or something. But other times, you know, it just happens. And most people know that they'll get out of the cycle. And I know that you interviewed Jenny Lawson recently on your program. I, I really enjoyed her book, Broken. And one of the things I really appreciated her saying is, you know, my brain's being an asshole right now, but I know that it'll be okay in a while. And so the idea of this is temporary and communicating that to the partner. And within the context of sex, one thing, I, I have some ideas of how to make things better. But one is, you know, to if there's this open communication with the partner, it might just be, along the lines of, hey, I'm just gonna lay there and let you do something because I don't have the energy to mm -hmm. put into it right now. Because you, one of the solutions is to just do it. Forget about wanting to do it, forget about making yourself think of the reasons to do it. You know, like Nike says, just do it, don't think about it. If you think about it, you'll think of all the reasons not to. And yeah. You know, what happens when you have sex, if you have an orgasm, which I'll talk a little bit about things you can do to overcome the antidepressant-induced side effects. But if you can have an orgasm, then guess what? All these feel-good brain chemicals are released. You get dopamine, you get opiates, you get oxytocin. All these things make you feel better. And yeah, they're not lasting enough that it's going to cure your depression, but it definitely gives a burst of feel good in the brain, which can temporarily at least give you kind of a mental break from feeling badly. Okay. So it, is the idea of just do it, just do it anyway, let's just get this over with, uh, ideally, you know, reaching a, a point of orgasm, is the idea that can kickstart into a better state of sexual health? That it's like, a, it's like hot wiring a car? Yeah, yes, yeah. so to, to some extent, it kind of jumpstarts it for people who have been avoiding it because of depression. But also, it can actually help with mood because you you are giving your brain a bit of a break from just feeling lousy. Um, and then you also, a lot of times, if people are depressed and they stop having sex, then what happens is also 
other intimate behaviors stop. So the person who wants to have sex stops the cuddling on the couch and the, you know, kissing and holding hands because they're tired of being rejected and they don't want it to be read as a sign of a foreplay. And the person who does not want to have sex as much stops doing it for the same reason. They don't want to it to be interpreted as a sign that they want to have sex. And so you see in couples that normally have a lot of intimate behaviors, when sex stops, those other behaviors stop as well. And then that leads to more feelings of isolation, which also can feed into the depression. So now we know what's happening with your mind. Let's talk about what to do about it. More with Dr. Cindy Meston in a moment. What kind of professional should someone go to uh, in, a, in a situation where they want to have more of a sex life, they've got a, a sort of nagging depression or, or some sort of behavioral disorder that's that's getting in the way? Like, are they better off going to a therapist or a family doctor, a urologist, a gynecologist? Like, who do they call? Yeah, well, I guess the first step would be to see if they really are clinically depressed. If they meet criteria for clinical depression, then you probably want to treat the depression first. And so that means usually going on a type of antidepressant. Now, if the antidepressant alleviates the depression, that's great. And for some people, then their sex drive comes back. Now, for others, as I mentioned earlier, there is a high chance that these antidepressants impair sexual functioning. However, there's a few solutions to that. And one is oftentimes you're on too high a dose. And there have been some studies that have shown under physician's guidance when individuals cut the dose back to about 50%, 75% of the people, their sexual problems disappeared. So it's frustrating because it's, uh, it all takes time but sometimes it's a matter of changing the dose. Sometimes it's a matter of changing the antidepressant because we don't have a good idea what causes side effects in one person doesn't in another. We kind of know the, which are the worst offenders, but there's huge individual variability. So you can't always predict which one is going to be good for you. So sometimes it's a matter of changing the antidepressant. Sometimes it's a matter of changing the dose. And then, you know, I've done some research in my lab for the last 20 years. One of my big focus has been on the role of the sympathetic nervous system on sexual arousal. This is the branch of the nervous system that prepares you for the fight or flight response. And we've shown that intense acute exercise right before sex within, I would say, ideally a 15 minute window and by intense acute exercise, I'm talking about running on a treadmill or exercise bike at about 70% of your maximum heart rate. So you're getting a good workout. And I've shown many, many times it's been replicated in sexually healthy women and women who have all sorts of sexual problems that this really jumpstarts arousal. The, this is a laboratory setting where the women come in, they simply view a non-sexual film followed by a sexual film, and we measure sexual arousal with a device called a vaginal photoplethysmograph that actually measures the amount of blood flow into genital tissue, which as I mentioned earlier, is highly correlated with vaginal lubrication. So in one condition, they don't exercise. In the other condition, they exercise for 20 minutes before uh, viewing the films. And we've found between 150 and 200% increase in sexual arousal when they've exercised prior to this. Now, why this is really relevant here is more recently, we've been looking to see whether this can help counter the antidepressant-induced sexual side effects. And we've done a number of studies, and indeed, in women who are on antidepressants, we found that this counteracts 
the effects of the antidepressants in that they are able to become sexually aroused like they used to be. And the, the most convincing study was one that one of my graduate students uh, did for her dissertation, and it was a, a very comprehensive study of women who had sexual dysfunction that was attributable to the antidepressants, and it was a nine-week study. So we followed them for three weeks. We measured their baseline sexual activity. And then for three weeks before sex, they went through this 20-minute exercise video. So it was an at-home study as opposed to a laboratory study, which is, you know, you wonder how generalizable it is to real life. So they engaged in this 20-minute exercise cardio video right before sex. They did that for three weeks. And then for three weeks, they also exercised for 20 minutes, but not right before sex, just at a different time from when they were having sex. And what we're trying to tease apart here is we know that there are lots of benefits of exercise. I mean, it makes you feel good. It increases your energy, your flexibility, all these sorts of things. We wanted to know, is it that they're having, that they're exercising right before sex, which is helping them become aroused? Or is it just exercise in general, that in is In their life, in general, yeah. Yes, yes. And so what we found is that both conditions were really beneficial. Exercising three times a week, 20 minutes, increasing your cardio to, to a fairly high rate, improved mood, it improved sexual function, it improved drive. And it was the case that when they exercised within 15 minutes of having sex, it was most beneficial. It really helped to counteract this the sexual side effects. Because one thing I didn't mention, when you're increasing serotonin, this also dampens down the sympathetic nervous system. And this is what increases blood flow into the genitals, which is basically what sexual arousal is. So both depression and antidepressants are also acting in that way to from a peripheral nervous system perspective, messing things up. So I guess getting back to your question, what do people do when they're depressed and they want to have more sex? I guess my thought is first try to resolve the depression and see if the, the sex comes back. If it doesn't come back or, or if the sexual side effects worsen because of the antidepressant, then Try a different antidepressant, try a different dose. Another thing that's recommended is that you take the antidepressant when it is the furthest away from when you're having sex. So, let, so if you have sex at 8 o'clock at night and you're done by 9 o'clock, then take the antidepressant at 9 o'clock so that it's the longest window of time for the antidepressant to be out of the system and it'll have the less impairment on the sexual response system. And then the other thing I really suggest is to, to activate the sympathetic nervous system through exercise. I mean, exercise is so good for depression to begin with. You're going to get the opiate release, so that's going to enhance mood. And it can certainly counteract some of the impediments to sexual responding. Is it is a situation like that, like what we're talking about, is it best viewed as an individual issue or an issue for a couple? Because I, I think of, when I think of depression, I think of something that brings somebody inside themselves, that makes somebody like sometimes overly introspective and, and they have a harder and harder time connecting with the world. Like, is it is it worth addressing on the individual level first or the couple level first? Well, that reminds me of an, another study, and this would call to the notion of addressing it at, at an individual level. Because sometimes when I said before, just do it, it may be just so insurmountable to, to, to just do it in a couple situation. We published a paper quite a few years ago now where we compared the sex lives of women who were depressed but not on antidepressants, and we're experiencing sexual dysfunction compared to non-depressed women. And what we found there, yes, the depressed women had higher reports of impaired desire, arousal, orgasm, but we found this really interesting anomalous effect. 
And it was that depressed women engaged in much higher rates of masturbation. And they reported wanting to engage in more masturbation behavior than engaging in partnered sex. The idea of having sex with a partner was aversive to them. Now, sadly, we didn't explore further as to why it is, but I can speculate that it's all the things I talked about earlier. It takes effort. You, you want, you're worried about pleasing your partner. Well, when you're depressed, you can't even please yourself. You don't want to have to please someone else, right? And then worried about your body, worried about all these different things. Whereas engaging in masturbation, it's a solo activity. You're by yourself in the privacy of home. You have no one to um, please but yourself. And so that is giving those same, upon orgasm, it's giving those same brain chemical releases that temporarily give you a break from just feeling so down, right? So is that good for the couple or is that... Uh... Is that bad for, well, for the couple? No, it's not bad. It's not bad for the, for the couple. It doesn't help. It may help the couple's sex because if a person can feel good, then, you know, it's going to help them to possibly feel a little desire. But, but yes, I mean, if you're in a sexual relationship, then it's a couple's issue. And this gets back to what I was talking about earlier, how communication is so important and, and to... I mean, a lot of people do find it helpful to talk to a therapist, a, a sex therapist, who is someone who can kind of mediate feelings and explain how, you know, what depression does to a person's sex life and, you know, how, what is acceptable to the couple until the depression alleviates. Like, how can we make this work? And it may mean, you know, Something as simple as, well, have sex in the morning instead of at night because I feel a little bit better in the morning. Try to time it, you know, with, with mood changes. You know, time medication use around when you have sex. So sometimes it's, you know, some simple solution. Sometimes it's a lot of cognitive restructuring about thought processes that are maybe going on in the relationship on either side that the person who is not depressed may feel rejected because their partner hasn't want to have, have sex with them for a long time. And, you know, this, of course, can lead to conflict and fear and worry about the relationship breaking up. Well, yeah, I mean, I would think, I mean, I, I think of cognitive behavioral therapy and, and the, the, the thought patterns that can lead into kind of bad parts of town in, in your mind and even if a person is not traditionally depressed, you know, they might not be aware of that whole concept of the thought patterns and the rerouting of the thought patterns. It can be really beneficial, you know, for both for both members of a couple to kind of uh, explore that and explore the patterns that they get into. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the literature shows that for treating depression, the absolute best combination is antidepressants combined with cognitive behavior therapy. You have the most long-lasting beneficial effects. And, and, and so that's, you know, for people who don't want to take antidepressants, you may try cognitive behavioral therapy to, to challenge these negative thoughts, these irrational negative thoughts that, that just kind of come out of nowhere and bombard people who feel depressed. Or even if you're on the antidepressants, the combination of the psychotherapy and the antidepressants is a good thing. So there's a, a I think people are going to benefit from from this knowledge of what happens inside the brain, inside the body, and I think that can help a lot. You've given us a a lot of uh, a lot of hope, and I think a lot of people are going to watch like uh, aerobics videos. Like that's <laughs> that's the unexpected result. Like, you know. <laughs> I know I'm truly not in the fitness business, but doing yeah. a promote here. But I think we might have sold a few Pelotons today. I'm not sure. <laughs> it really, really helps. It helps mood. It helps energy. It helps your sex life. You know, just get out there and run around the block a few times, or run on a treadmill, run on you know, an, or work on an exercise bike. Yeah, it, it's a good thing for alleviating depression and and helping to counter some of these 
sexual side effects. And then the other thing is just to, and the easy or said than done, but understanding that, that what's happening with depression, there is a lot of brain chemical changes, your peripheral nervous system is impacted such that arousal is more difficult. So you may be losing erection. You may have trouble becoming aroused. You're distracted by thought. So that again is adding to the difficulty of the scenario. And all these things, you know, if you understand them, then the hope is that it takes away the blame and the shame. You know, there's no shame to any of this. It's depression is sadly very prevalent. And, you know, everybody knows with, with COVID that depression rates have soared. So, um, and in, in my field, the rates of sexual dysfunction have increased as, as a result. So, you know, give yourself a break. You know, it's a lot of this is situational and a lot of this is neurochemical and it's something that, um, you know, isn't your fault. So, it's a good message. It's a good message. Dr. Cindy Meston, thank you for your help today, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure being on your program. Orgasms, exercise, antidepressant calibration, write that all down. Also, Dr. Meston talked about the benefits of therapy. So let's go to therapy right after the break. I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. Or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. In this talk about sex and depression and wanting to connect and wanting to feel good, let's remember that you don't necessarily have to go it alone. Renee Siegel is a licensed family and marriage therapist in the Twin Cities. What effect does, say, a depressive disorder have on the sexual health and intimacy in a relationship? What do you hear about most often? What are you, what are you looking at most often? Well, and it, I think it has a significant effect on relationships. Depression has a significant effect on relationships. And what you'll see is low desire in, on a, in a sexual relationship when you've got somebody who's depressed. And that can put the partner into a tailspin, thinking they're not attractive, thinking it can affect self-esteem in the partner. But generally speaking, people that are that are really depressed just have low desire. And then if that if that self-esteem, if that self-image of the partner who has maybe not been diagnosed with a depressive disorder, mm-hmm. it seems like that would would further compound the problem. Like if they're feeling terrible about themselves, they're not likely to to want to connect in that way. Well, what happens is it's a really, it's kind of an interesting cycle. This is not always, but this is just one of the presentations and probably the most common that I see in my office is you've got a depressed partner 
they have low sexual desire, this could be a male or female, the other partner doesn't feel attractive and what they do is they try to encourage the depressed partner to be sexual. And so then you can end up with feeling more rejection and then they end up feeling more depressed, I'm just not in the mood, or they end up feeling, and then the other partner is more anxious and probably more you know, pursuing for sex and trying to encourage them and encouraging them to get out of their depression and have you thought about meditation, have you thought about doing this, and they're trying to encourage them, which then makes the depressed partner feel worse about themselves. Mm. It seems like it's the fundamental issue of depression, the mood versus depression, the disorder, right? Like, so the, the non-affected partner, I mean, both partners are affected, but the, yeah. the, the non-diagnosed partner is saying, well, why don't you cheer up? Why don't I do so like, wh why don't you change this moment? But it's not about the moment. It's about an ongoing thing. Exactly. Right. It's, it's a, a bigger issue. It's a much bigger issue. And they're like, come on, be happy. Come on, let's go do this. And then the depressed person is like, no, I don't have the energy. I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people are reluctant to talk about mental health in our society. People are at least as reluctant to talk in an open, honest way about sexual health. How much of the barrier to improving things is just coming from that stigma, that shyness either to, to talk to you or to a therapist or even to each other about some of these problems? The population that I see will come in and they'll say, I'm depressed because they're coming to therapy. So they're already, they're not shy about talking about it. I think the sexual health piece is something people, especially men, if they've got ED or PE, premature ejaculation or rapid ejaculation or something like that, if they've got problems, men have a harder time bringing it up and they need a longer relationship with a therapist to be able to talk about it. The thing I think of most with depression or an anxiety disorder, traumatic stress, all these things is that they drive a person within themselves, right? Exactly. So, so mm -hmm. logically, they would just have a harder time connecting with someone else. Like if I'm, if I'm that far in my, in my own head, I'm just, it's more and more distance to try to connect with someone else. Am I oversimplifying by thinking of it like that? I don't think you're oversimplifying. I think that it's more complex than what you're describing, but I think you're you're absolutely right. In some ways, they're so locked inside, it's hard to reach. It's hard to reach for somebody else. When people come to you for help, are they are they mostly coming as and and this and like a a sexual health issue is at is at hand? Are they coming to you as individuals or couples? And what are the issues that are driving them in the door? So both. We see individuals with relationship issues and couples with relationship issues. And so usually they'll walk in the door and they'll say, I'm really disconnected from my partner. And what we understand around that is that they're not talking intimately enough, emotionally intimately enough, connecting close enough that there's, there's just sort of this distance in their relationship. Maybe they're fighting a lot, or maybe it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of fighting going on, which creates distance, or maybe there's just kind of this malaise and just this w withdrawn pattern, and so they're not connecting at all. And then that builds on their sexual relationship, and their sexual relationship, they, can't, they don't know how to reach for each other, or their sexual relationship, it's, it's not close. So, so that's why they might be coming in. They might also be coming in due to an affair. We see that happen quite a bit. People will say, I reached out for my affair partner. They understood me. And usually what we see is that there's a big period of disconnection in the primary relationship. And then somebody starts talking deeply about themselves and connecting more intimately. And then they have an affair and that affair partner and the sex is just naturally born out of that because there's a lot of emotional intimacy. So we'll see that kind of come in. We'll see individuals who are really anxious because they're not being sexual with their partners. And sometimes that's related to PTSD. Sometimes that's related to unresolved trauma in the past, or there's a relationship issue that created that. 
if someone has a depressive disorder, if someone has mm -hmm. an anxiety disorder, if someone suffers from OCD and, and, and it's mm -hmm. acute, like it's an ongoing thing, right. can, can they be in that state but also have a good and healthy sexual relationship? Yes, if they know how to manage it. If somebody has OCD... Everyone is reaching for a pad of paper right now to find I, out how to manage it. How to manage it. So with OCD, and OCD is not necessarily like, you know, you're, you're oh, I'm going to step on cracks or counting the shades. I mean, sometimes it can show up in that way where, you know, someone, or they're checking and things like that. OCD is more like you get thought, stuck in a thought jag. Like, oh... Oh, I have a bump on my body and I have cancer and I've got to go check with the doctor or it's born out of like, I did something wrong and then I feel sort of contaminated. And so I have to engage in these compulsive kinds of things. People need to understand that engaging in the compulsive behavior doesn't mitigate the obsessive thoughts. And so if people can understand this is just my OCD acting up, and they can put it away, and that I'm not going to feed it, then they can go on and function. So OCD is a complicated disorder, but if people understand what it is, and they can name it, and they can put it with what's going on, they can move on, and they can function. And you can be in a relationship with someone who will just say, okay, my OCD is acting up today because I did something and I feel really bad about it. People with depression, I think, again, we would want them to understand the origins of the depression, what's going on, and sometimes what the triggers of the depression are and what kicks it up. And so depending on how severe the depression is, there's, there's lots of ways to treat depression. And the same thing with anxiety, other anxiety disorders. When they're anxious, sometimes with anxiety, if you've got just someone who has got some panic attacks or something, if they're in a supportive relationship, they can go and they can reach out to their partner and they can say, you know, I need, I'm feeling really anxious and their partner can be a big comfort to them. And then that, that can help. So a secure relationship does help with some of these disorders. So then I, I'm, I'm looking for the path between the, the disorder and and the sexual health. I mean, I guess my question is, if somebody is in a pit of depression, you know, and we, we know what we're talking about here. We, you know, we know, like, does the sentence, yeah, I'm in a horrible depressive pit, but my sex life is going great with my partner. Like, is that a thing? Or do they need to get back on track in order to have that sexual health be strong? Ah, uh, that is a great question. And so, John, I don't know that I've ever seen somebody who's in the pit of a depression tell me my sexual health is going great. I don't, I think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I think I'm in the pit of my depression and I'm having really detached sex might happen, but I also don't see that. I think when you're feeling really bad, it just turns everything off. So then when you, Renee, as a, as a therapist, set out to help address some of these things, are you, and I, and I know you do a lot of work on intimacy issues with individuals and with couples, are you addressing the disorder and then saying, okay, let's get that on track, then we'll get to the sex? Is it, are you trying to address it all as a whole, like what's, what do you spring into action to do in these moments? Yeah, well, so first of all, what we do is first we want to observe the situation and understand what's going on and what the, the couple dynamic is, okay? So they might come in and they might say, partner A is depressed, we're not having sex. And so I just want to understand how does depression show up? What does depression look like? Are they working? Are they unable to work? And how has that affected the couple dynamic? And is partner B trying to cheer them up or are they a supportive partner? And then we we might send partner A, the one that, that has depression, to do some individual therapy or maybe just the couple work is going to be enough. And then we'll get the couple more connected and then unless it's just a sexual issue that is causing the depression, it sort of depends on what the origins of the depression are. If they're outside of the sexual relationship and the sexual relationship is the result of the disconnection and the depression, we'll try to get the disconnection and the depression in order. 
if the depression is related or the result of bad sexual experience, or if that's the cause, we're not having sex and that's causing the depression, we just sort of have to see what's going on in the couple relationship. Is the severity of a disorder linked to the severity of the problems that a person or a couple are facing? Like if I'm a little bit depressed, am I likely to have just a small problem with with this connection? <laughs> but if I'm a lot depressed, I will logically necessarily have a much larger problem? Uh, yeah. Tell me how all people are, Renee Siegel. <laughs> um, it's really complicated. And I think it depends. It depends on how the person experiences the depression. I have met people that are severely depressed that you would never know that, that are depressed. And they're hiding it. And they're coming in and they look really happy. And... They're really severely depressed and their partner doesn't even know because they're hiding it and they're just going along to get along. And that's the most painful to watch that. And so, and then sometimes they'll bring in the partner and, you know, the bottom drops out because the partner had no idea and they're just going along to get along. So it's sad in those kind of situations. We want you to be able to talk about how you feel inside and get that support from your partner. We know that there are a lot of non-pharmaceutical ways to address a common disorder. There's meditation, there's, you know, getting exercise, getting, you know, figuring out your sleep, a light box for seasonal affective disorder. Right. Food, food, right? Foods, they're saying, you know, eating broccoli or potatoes to cure your depression or things like that. In potatoes, do French fries count? <laughs> I wish that they did. Okay. I wish that they did. It would be really lovely if you they kind did. Of, you kind of trip my imagination with yeah. the word potatoes. Are, are yeah. any of these these non-pharmaceutical remedies especially helpful for intimacy issues? I guess just I'm only going to tell you in my clinical experience, I have seen meditation help. I have seen exercise help. I have seen couples uh, where one partner is depressed and they start exercising together, and I've seen that really increase intimacy. Sometimes if you can do partner yoga or things like that, or start to go for a run together or biking together or walking together or things like that, I have seen movement really help. But that's just my clinical experience. Do you think that's because it's... I mean, so often in the world today, you could just feel like a floating head going through the world. You know, it's just all <laughs> your thoughts and, you know, just getting your, your head to the next place. Is it just a matter of connecting with your body and realizing you have an entire body? It could be. I guess I haven't heard the expression of floating head, but I think that I, I'm just <laughs> trying to Stick around this podcast, Renee. We're going to have <laughs> probably hear that again. Um, I think that it probably... There could be. There could be something to that where you're like living in your body. And there's also many different kinds of depression, John. There's dysthymia, which is uh, sort of like a personality depression. It's kind of, if you think about Charlie Brown or Eeyore, where there's sort of a negative personality. where everything Kind of a low-grade, constant depression without so many of the peaks and valleys. Right, exactly. Then there's, which is, I think, harder to deal with because that's just sort of a negative, a negative Nelly person. Then there's major it depression. It always helps to call people negative Nellies, too, <laughs> because that'll bring them right around. Right. I mean, it's just to understand or that they're, they are like Eeyore um, and that they're just always sort of that pessimistic kind of negative. And those type of people kind of sometimes we find that they don't have a lot of friends because they push people away quite a bit, which is really hard. It's also hard on the partner. But people with major depression, and if you have a major depressive episode with a big valley, sometimes there might be a precipitating event, which might help. And sometimes you can do more work with them to get them out of that kind of in a, in a quicker way. I think anxiety tends to be, you know, you could just have people on hyper alert all the time. To me, it seems like the folks with anxiety might, if you want to tie it to their sexual relationship, might be more sexually functional. 
than the really depressed people. But that's my clinical experience, and I could be wrong, and there's no research on that. It would be an interesting research study. Are you saying that people are complicated, Renee? Yeah, <laughs> very complicated. I wish I could. we could just fit them in a little box. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I always say if there was one thing that worked for everybody, everybody would do that thing, and it would be solved, but... Uh... Sadly. Yes. Last question I have. So a couple wants to be more intimate. They want to have more sex. They want to have a closer relationship in that way. Something like depression is interfering. What's something that you can tell them, even though this is just a podcast episode, that that they could carry with them from listening to this podcast episode? I would say to talk more to talk more about what's depressing you, to reach out to your partner and to really share in an intimate way. I'm really feeling sad today. And here's what I've been thinking about. Here's what's on my mind. Here's what's inside of me, because that will generally draw the couple closer and they can increase their sexual relationship. Hold each other, touch each other, and really look into each other's eyes and talk about what's going on. That's something that will definitely help. When you say talk more, it's not about the sex. It's about what you're feeling inside. Okay. What you're feeling inside and how you're, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? How are you feeling about yourself? How are you feeling about what's, what's going on? Not the logistics, not going to buy the milk. It's about how you're feeling inside. What's on your mind? And share that with your partner. Renee Siegel, thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. I'm glad to be here. That's Renee Siegel. We have a link to her practice and some videos with Dr. Cindy Meston on our show page. And now let's, uh, let's downshift our brains, perhaps at least throw them in neutral. I don't want to go too far with the car metaphor here, but uh, it's a meditation moment with Laura House. She's the co-host of the Tiny Victories podcast and an experienced meditation. Uh, what is it, Laura? Teacher, guide, not guru. Uh, yeah, I'd say meditation teacher. Sure. Okay. Co yeah. The coach, maybe. I get a whistle, get a clipboard. Right. If you're not meditating right, she blows her whistle very loudly. <laughs> My grandma can meditate better than that. I you shame call that you. inner peace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I scream at you to make it yeah. better. I guess that would be one approach, but that's not generally the approach you take. <laughs> I want to see your mantras. <laughs> Chakras up front, everybody. <laughs> well, take us, take us through a little break here, if you could, Laura. Yeah, totally. And I, I like the car metaphor. I, there's something I kind of like the idea of, you know, jump in the passenger seat of your own mind or like hop in the back seat like you. We're just letting go. And the great thing is your body is already equipped to do that. So here's what we do. Just get comfortable. You want to be in a place where you can close your eyes safely. So not driving not literally driving and <laughs> close your eyes. And that's the first thing we do. We just get comfortable, close your eyes and just notice your breath. Like really you're not concentrating. You're not sort of staring at it. You're just, your breath is happening and you're just noticing. And you may also be noticing that you're having thoughts. That is normal. We're not trying to get rid of thoughts. You're just noticing your breath. Thoughts are there. If you find your attention, when you notice that your attention's on your thoughts, just notice your breath again. Just let go.
Okay, you can go ahead and open your eyes slowly. Maybe give a yawn and a stretch. I have a question for you, Laura. When, Because you teach meditation, you lead workshops from all over the place, Universal Studios included, as, <laughs> as you've told me before. Do you find that, that people cry during meditation? Oh, that's very interesting. I I have done it, and I think it's a thing that can happen when we really let go, and maybe there's yeah. a thing that we were holding on to on some level. I Like a tension. Like I, I've seen it with people's experience with massage or like I'm thinking – you Certain know, yoga, yeah, yoga, or you know, even even in theater, sort of movement work. You know, mm. when you can really release that tension, it's not even that you're upset about something or sad about anything in particular. It's just a way that the tension leaves the body. Mm -hmm. Part of what's behind it is you hold on to stress in your body, mm. and so sometimes it can come out in tears. Sometimes, when people are meditating, their like their arm might jerk, like have a sudden movement wow. or something because. They're just something is releasing. And one of the thoughts I really like about that that I want to share is if you think of it as things come out in meditation. So you can think of it as like, just let it go. Like, oh, this is releasing. This is air out of the tire. So for example, if you do cry in meditation, we don't have to sort of grab it and be like, well, what am I sad about? And right. I, you can just be like, oh, that was something that's- That's just, happening. How that's about that? That's just leaving me. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good riddance. Yeah. Yeah. Notice it and then, and, then, uh, and then move along. I feel like I went through a period where I cried for a couple of weeks when uh -huh. I would meditate, like off and on. And I think my my mom had passed a couple of years before and I had grieved it, but I think there was just residual something. So yeah. it's really, I know we keep it light here, but it's really powerful in that yeah. way of like, yeah. oh, this, this is getting out in a way that did not get out in another way. Yes. The body keeps the score is, uh, is the oh, book, yeah. the Bessel van der Kolk book I often refer people to for, oh, for how trauma lives in the muscles. and uh, Oh, that's know. awesome. Yeah, if you can put a valve on that, just so much the better. Yeah, exactly. All right, Laura House, co-host of the Tiny Victories podcast with Annabelle Gerwich. You can find more about Laura at laurahouse.com. Laura, I can't believe this is part of our job that we get to do this. It's such a treat. <laughs> and thank you, as always. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, sometimes an amusement park isn't exactly amusing. I have a picture of me having a panic attack on a Ferris wheel. And I found this picture in my stack of old pictures and I went, oh my God, I know what, I know that face. I'm gripping the bars and I'm just really quiet. So it looks like nothing. On the inside, it felt like you're dying, you're dying. And you don't really know what you're dying of. It's not as literal as I have chest pains. It's like breathing becomes really hyperventilated. And it was just this feeling of like, I have to run away, you know, that thing. Comedian and author Jen Kirkman on anxiety, panic, and managing those things. If people support our show through a small donation, we can keep being here together. If not, we can't. It all goes away. If you donate, you make Depression Mode happen. Thank you. If you haven't donated yet, don't worry. It's easy. You can find a level that works for you. Just go to MaximumFun.org join. Did you know I wrote a book? It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. It's a memoir about me and my life and mental health. There are jokes in it. There are good stories. There are helpful tips. It's available wherever books are sold. It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. Be sure to hit subscribe on Depression Mode. Do it now. Give us five stars. Write reviews. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations going. Please know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Please use our electric mail address, depressmode at maximumfun.org. Drop us a line. Give us your thoughts, suggestions, criticisms, brownie recipes. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. They are very active and very helpful, very informative, sometimes a lot of fun. 
and sometimes great topics for shows emerge from that group, as happened this week. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressionPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, Credits listeners. Thanks for listening to the credits. Counting touring members, there have been 37 Doobie Brothers, which must have just been so exhausting for the Doobie Mother. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing. I'm Migs from Southeast Asia. May your heart be your guiding key. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.